next, we will be hearing our doctrinal essay. Pastor Phil Hirsch, president of the Nebraska District. Welcome. Thanks for having me. It is a privilege to be here. It's a privilege to call yourself a child of God. So uh, Phil Hirsch is my name. I live in Manhattan, Kansas, serve a congregation, Hope Lutheran Church there in Manhattan, Kansas. And as President Schrader just said, I get to serve in the Nebraska district, which you win the prize if you can tell me all the states that are comprised in the Nebraska district. Nebraska, obviously. I live in Kansas. Okay, what else? Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, and corners of New Mexico, and South Dakota, and Missouri, and Iowa. So, just fun. You and your synod, you learned something today. Yesterday in orientation, Pastor Voss told us delegates that doctrine matters to our church body, and at meetings like this, we set aside time to do a doctrinal essay. Um, I'm really thankful that he said that. He was saying he wants meat and potatoes. We want meat and potatoes in front of you. It's my humble prayer that I think it is meat and potatoes in front of you. Uh, and as I typically do in things like this, I sometimes do too much. So I'm going to jump over some sections in this 27-page paper. I'm not going to skip it because that would say, like, you know, it's not any good. Don't read it. Of course you should read it. Put it in your reading room, in your bathroom, and read these great quotes. Because some of them are priceless. Most of them are going to be Luther quotes. And if you're like me, maybe you've tried reading Luther and you bonked your head against him because sometimes he just goes off on tangents. Well, I submit to you that Luther in the bondage of the will and on the Heidelberg Disputation and in Genesis Commentary, this is some stuff from Luther that you can't not read. It's pretty awesome because it's at the core of what we're going to talk about in the theology of the cross. So um, no apologies for the quotes, but we're going to jump over some of them, I promise you. Um, at the... At, couple of last notes here. You all know, you've been told a thousand times, there's two religions, right? Works, faith. Luther says it this way, there's two religions, there's two theologies. Glory, works, the cross, faith. For the works end of things, it requires the human to at least bring something to the negotiation table between God and the human, right? All theologies of glory somehow teach that the human either brings a lot or a medium amount or little or a tiny bit, but at least it's something. All theologies of glory misteach what the human can bring before an almighty righteous God. The theology of the cross, on the other hand, says the human you got nothing. In the, in the negotiations between God and you. What you do have is a huge God, way bigger than you know, and a, a marvelous, marvelous picture of a suffering, dying God on the cross, the theology of the cross, which is primarily 
Jesus Christ on the cross. So, um, we heard Pastor Obenberger this morning quote from the Heidelberg Disputation, um, and he talked about people missing the way things are and calling evil things good and good things evil. It's a really fun thing to come to grips with that, isn't it? I bet you think, because I sometimes think I can do it, you can see somebody and you can tell if they're a good person. You think you can tell if that one, you know, knows the Lord Jesus. They're huffing and they're puffing and they're doing so many good deeds. It's really, that's what Luther's saying there. They call evil good and they call good evil. It looks like evil on the cross. God humiliated, if that's really God in the flesh. And at the same time, those who are doing good works upon good works upon good works, they're defending themselves against that God who comes to us on the cross. It's unbelievably remarkable. So let's get going. Page one. By the way, you realize that we're kind of ahead of schedule. Pastor Schrader said, I can be up here till five o'clock this afternoon. (laughs) Not really. I'm planning on 100 minutes or less. We start, that person does not deserve to be called a theologian who looks upon the invisible things of God as though they were clearly perceptible in those things which have actually happened. He deserves to be called a theologian, however, who comprehends the visible and manifest things of God seen through suffering and the cross. A theologian of glory calls evil good and good evil. A theologian of the cross calls the thing what it actually is. The pervasiveness of cross-crown language. Mary Baker Eddy of Christian Science fame said, if you launch your bark upon the ever agitated but healthful waters of truth, you will encounter storms. Your good will be evil spoken of. This is the cross. Take it up and bear it, for through it you will win and wear the crown. Cross and crown is central to her teaching. Whoever reaches the understanding of Christian science in its proper signification, will perform the sudden cures of which it is capable. But this can be done only by taking up the cross daily and following Christ in the daily life. You'll win your crown by struggling through the storms. The cross, so says a theologian of glory. Now, I don't really think that too many of us are troubled by Christian scientists anymore, but at least you get the idea. There are people who talk this way, and it's awful easy for my flesh to go there. If I hang in there enough and carry the cross enough, you know, I'll, I'll earn something. St. Rose of Lima, who only allowed herself to sleep two hours a night at most so that she had more hours to devote to prayer, and who donned a heavy crown made of silver with small spikes on the inside in emulation of the crown of thorns worn by Christ, is quoted in the Roman Catholic Catechism saying, apart from the cross, there is no other ladder by which we may get to heaven. The Catechism continues, because in his incarnate divine person, Christ has in some way united himself to every man, the possibility of being made partners in a way known to God in the Paschal ministry is offered to all men. He calls his disciples to take up their cross and follow him, for Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example so that we should follow him in his steps. The willingness with which St. Rose adopted sufferings in this life, even taking them upon herself, 
teaches a valuable lesson to the world today. When suffering is something to be disdained at all costs, consider, for example, the widespread acceptance for and support for suffering-eliminating practices like euthanasia, St. Rose's story concretely presents another way. Her life illuminates the gospel's wisdom on suffering. Keeping in mind Jesus' admonition to the rich young man, the way to heaven's impossible without taking up the cross. You'll win your crown by taking on sufferings and the cross. So says another theologian of glory. William Penn's Pennsylvania experiment profoundly influenced the American experiment later. He says what a free willer, theologian of glory, would say. What one who rejects God showing up in word and sacrament would say, no cross, no crown. By the way, I forgot to mention this. Please pull out your little pen and make notes where you want to make comments or questions later. I'm going to stop in a while, um, you know, about 11, page 11 or 12 or so, and we'll stop there and then we'll, if you want to, and same thing at the end. This next paragraph is, is uh, by Viktor Frankl, a Jewish um, psychotherapist, psychiatrist who uh, founded a school of psychotherapy a Holocaust survivor. He's obviously not a Christian, and yet turn to the top of page two. This is one of those things we're jumping over, okay? Top of page two, in the middle of him trying to explain how humans still try to find meaning in life, that's what he says it's all about, at the top of the page you see the italicized section. Sometimes a man may be required to simply accept fate, to bear his cross. Every situation is distinguished by its uniqueness. There's always only one right answer to the problem. A Jewish psychiatrist, and he was a Jew. He did not believe in the Lord Jesus. A Jewish psychiatrist and theologian of glory, even though he's not consciously being a theologian, says cross-bearing is required. It's all over the place. Church historian Eusebius famously reports that Constantine was marching with his army, most think at the Milvian Bridge in 312 AD, when he looked up to the sun, saw a cross of light above it, and with the Greek words in this conquer, a phrase often rendered in Latin, in hoc signo vincius, in this sign you will conquer. Constantine did not know the meaning of the apparition, but on the following night, it's said that he had a dream in which Christ explained to him that he should use the sign of the cross against his enemies. Onward, Christian soldiers. And the symbol of the cross has been used by theologians of glory ever since. You see in the picture there, the little banner up in the sky? There's that little Greek phrase. Top of the next page. Do I need to say anything about the so-called touchdown Jesus at Notre Dame University? The cross and the crown get mushed together so easily and so badly. Below the picture, in contrast, we have Martin Luther's theology of the cross, but of course that's not original to Luther, that's St. Paul. St. Paul wrote to a splintered group in Corinth, solidly in the context of the first century Greco-Roman Mediterranean world, complete with its ethnic strife, social class rivalries, and competing gods, philosophies, wisdom, and truth claims. And in the end, he equated the crucified Jesus with the Lord of the Jews, encouraging a solid basis for boasting in the Lord, Jesus. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom used in speeches, 
so that the cross of Christ would not be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In fact, it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will bring to nothing. Where is the wise man? Where's the expert in the Jewish law? Where's the probing thinker of the present age? Has not God shown that the wisdom of this world is foolish? Indeed, since the world through its wisdom did not know God, God in his wisdom decided to save those who believe through the foolishness of the preached message. Yes, Jews ask for signs, Greeks desire wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, which is offensive to Jews and foolishness to Greeks, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. We preach Christ crucified because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We jump over that, the rest of that Corinthians quote to the next paragraph. The astounding central assertion of Christianity is that God put on flesh in Jesus and died as the atoning sacrifice for his creatures. Jesus had to teach the two on the way to Emmaus that he, the Christ, had to suffer and then enter his glory and that all scriptures truly centered in him. A generation later, Jesus' apostle asserted that the offense of the cross of Christ is that such a message of freedom makes all the huffing and puffing and working of the glory theologians worthy of castration. In the faithful church, we need to ground cross speech with all of its notions of suffering and even dying cleanly and clearly and faithfully, or it'll quickly go the way of curved in on ourselves theology and make the cross all about us and our suffering. Then we'll arrive at crown speech with all of its notions of ruling and reigning, especially eschatologically, having to do with the last things. Faithfully and clearly and cleanly, we need to put cross and crown terminology together faithfully for the good of any who will be listening. And then comes the, the uh, quote that we started with again. It's good to clarify these theses. Remember, this is uh, the first spring pastor's conference, 1518, after Luther had posted his 95 theses about indulgences, right? In October 31, fall of 1517, Luther's called on to teach this theology that, that uh, has dropped a bomb on all of Europe. That person does not deserve to be called a theologian who looks upon the invisible things of God as though they were clearly perceptible in those things that have actually happened. That person deserves to be called a theologian, however, who comprehends the visible and manifest things of God through suffering and the cross. A theologian of glory calls evil good, and good evil. A theologian of the cross calls the thing what it actually is. Hermann Zasse writes against theologians who confuse cross and crown, who use the cross of Christ as a lucky charm for their triumphalistic schemes. The oldest Theologia Crucis appears to be a typical example of what Luther later called the theology of glory. The cross is a direct revelation of the glory of God on earth 
Triumphantly, it precedes the victorious armies of the Christian emperors and the valiant hosts of the church militant. As in the first centuries the demons fled from the sign of the cross, so now the enemies of the church flee in confusion where the banner of the cross or the relics of the cross appear. Who can resist the power of this sign? The cross is the sign by which unfailing victory is gained. In it, God's power becomes visible in the world. Like I said, it's an example of twisting and mixing up the theology of the cross and the theology of glory. You can see it. It's glorious. Well, again, that's not at all what Luther means to say. You've heard it. Our football team won because we have so many glorious Christians on the team. Our business is booming because we virtue signal our glorious Christianity by not being open on Sunday. This is using the cross for our own ends, not God's. This is being a theologian of glory. Top of the page, don't miss the section heading. We embrace the cross. We embrace and we anticipate the crown. This image is from the first or second century after Christ. This, from, this image from the first or second century after Christ seems to show a young man worshiping a crucified donkey-headed figure. The Greek inscription approximately translates to Alexamenus worships his God, indicating that the graffito, singular of graffiti, you wordsmiths would love to know, indicating that the graffito was apparently meant to mock a Christian named Alexamenus. Please note clearly that Alexamenus is being mocked for actually worshiping his crucified deity. He understands the theology of the cross is primarily about the assertion that it's the deity being shamed and killed up there on the torture device. This is exactly where this essay is attempting to focus our thinking and our speaking in the faithful church on the person crucified up there on the cross and what the promises are that we should be proclaiming in his name to each other and to those who need to hear his promises. Second century philosopher Celsus also noticed and then reacted to faithful Christian proclamation. He used an imaginary Jew to be a literary mouthpiece in his negative critiques of Christian proclamation. John Granger Cook, who wrote the book about it, says, Celsus Jew rejects the Christian's theology of the cross. Do you reproach us, you most credulous people, because we do not think this person is God, and because we don't agree with you that he endured these things to help humankind so that we too may scorn punishments? What a mockery. Later on, Cook says, Celsus is apparently aware of Hellenistic Judaism's belief in the Logos, capital W word, right? That's that Greek word, stands for word, as son of God. What he cannot accept is a crucified Logos. At least Celsus clearly heard faithful Christian proclamation, faithful theology of the cross, of the crucified Jesus of Nazareth for the sins of the world, and it literally offended him made him fall down away from the faith. The cross of Christ first, and then Christian suffering and the crown faithfully proclaimed. Today, 
here at the 67th Biennial Convention of Wells, when we say we embrace the cross, let us say more than we embrace suffering or more than in this sign we'll conquer. Let us come to grips with the hiddenness of God and with the unfreedom of the humans also. For the faithful theology of the cross-crown package includes the bound will, not the free will, of the human. The God who reveals himself when and where he wills and the one who promises to do it via the means of grace in the most foolish of ways. Proclamation, word, sacrament. Let us say we are embracing and proclaiming a specific cross, the cross of Jesus Christ and all of the promises attached to him. Zase, where there is one thing to preach, the wisdom of the cross in response to Isaiah's question, what shall I preach? The cross in this sense is not one of many theologies, but it claims to be in contrast to the theology of glory and claims to be the correct scriptural theology with which the church of Christ stands or falls. The cross is the revelation, for it is the only place where God makes himself visible. What do we mean by that? What does Luther mean when he says that we can find God nowhere else than in Christ crucified? How is it that God is present in a special way in the cross? To understand that, we have to ask what revelation is. Revelation occurs when something hidden comes out from its hiddenness into the open. Revelation of God is God's coming forth from his hiddenness. For God is hidden as all objects of faith are hidden. Faith, after all, according to the definition of Hebrews 11.1, which Luther quotes so often, has to do with things unseen. And God remains hidden for as long as we live on earth. He dwells in the light which no man can approach, as his word teaches us. He also said that he would dwell in the thick darkness. He is a hidden God whose face cannot be seen by any man until we shall see him in the light of glory as he is face to face. But though God remains hidden to our eyes, he still reveals himself by his word. So the revelation in the word is the way of divine revelation in this world. At sundry times and in diverse manners, God spake to the fathers by the prophets until in these last days, that is now at the end of the world, he spake to us through the Son, who is more than a prophet, being the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person. He is the eternal word which was in the beginning. This word is the content of all written and preached words of God. About him, we are told, and the word was made flesh, and we beheld his glory. Thus, the revelation in the word becomes incarnation, in fleshness. Therefore, Jesus Christ, as the Logos incarnate, the word in flesh, is the revelation of God on earth, only in him, the eternal word does God come forth out of his hiddenness. He is the content of all that is divine word. His incarnation is the making visible of the word. The man Jesus is the visible word. He who sees Jesus sees the Father as far as it's possible to see him in this eon. 
Here we understand Luther's doctrine of the cross. If God wants to reveal himself, to make himself visible to man, he cannot show himself as he is. He cannot show his glory unveiled, for no man would bear the sight of God in his unveiled glory. So he chooses to veil, so he chooses the veil of human nature. Incarnation, therefore, is at the same time revelation of God and hiding of his glory. The hidden God the invisible, eternal God becomes for us God revealed in Jesus Christ. But the revelation, this unveiling, which is what revelatio originally meant, is at the same time veiling, hiding. This explains Luther's twofold use of the expression God hidden. Luther can speak of the hidden God in the sense of God as he has not yet revealed himself and of God who has revealed himself by hiding himself in the humanity of Jesus Christ. The incarnation, therefore, is at the same time both revelation of God and veiling, hiding of God in the human nature. As the Lord worked out his salvation story that began in the promise to Adam and Eve, and was to culminate on Calvary's cross in the crucified Jesus of Nazareth, God hid his glory from Moses. Your pastor learned to work in the Hebrew of the Old Testament. He experienced what all the pastors in our synod had learned. There's this very special name for God, and there you see it capitalized in English, the Lord, right? All the, all the letters are capitalized that Moses used. The Tetragrammaton, literally that means the four-letter name. So special is this name that it has a kathiv, a written presentation. There you see it, the four letters of the Hebrew. And it has a spoken one, the karei. Faithful Jews all over the world still today and faithful MLC students studying to become candidates for the pastoral ministry have to come to grips with this name and this God. We've all heard the story. Moses hid his face from this God who had spoken from the bush that burned, but it didn't burn up. He removed his sandals, for it was holy ground, this place where God spoke and answered Moses when he asked what to say to the Israelites when asked the name of the one who sent him. And God said to Moses, Eyeh, Asher, Eyeh. So mysterious and majestic is the name and we're not even yet really talking about the hidden one that the name reveals. That Professor John Brug says, we, don't, we do not know with certainty how this name is to be pronounced. And it could be translated, I am, or I will continue to be what I was, Brug says. We simply cannot overstate the majesty of the Lord's name and, of course, of the Lord himself. Impossible to overstate that God. Moses went as the Lord had sent him and then had led the people out of Egypt. He was now on Mount Sinai. Moses, overestimating his chumminess with the Lord, or perhaps desperate for assurance, wanted to see God. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, 
for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Neither Moses nor any other human could see the face of God and live. So God, in his grace, reveals to Moses what the Lord wanted him to see, his back, his achorai, in Hebrew, his ta'opismomu, the LXX is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament so that the Jews could read. We'll get there in a second. Posterioria mea, right? Posterior, you know what your posterior is, right? Luther's translation there is his hintenach, his hinder parts. God let Moses see his hinder parts. Sainted Professor Arnold Kelpine, not normally known for earthy speech, unless he was talking Luther talk, said it differently. And you're not going to get me to say it. This is far from the cuddly bear picture of God and Moses the children's story Bibles portray. This God consumes the humans. This God has to hide himself from the humans for their own good. This God destroys both soul and body of the human sinner in hell. He speaks and it thunders. Limits have to be set up for the protection of the people, lest the Lord break out against them. This God is to be feared. This big God is the one who had chosen to speak it all into existence. So mysterious, so majestic. He could have done anything, and he speaks, let there be, and it is, and it is good. Remember that he had chosen to create, hands-on, the crown of his creation. He walked with them in the cool of the day, talking with them, male and female, both created in the image of him, there was no need to hide from the humans for their good before their rebellion against their creator. But when the man and the woman chose to be God and reject their creator, this Lord God, who had spoken it all into existence, chose to speak powerfully again in a promise. A promise of a seed of the woman that would strike the head of the serpent. The seed would win the God who now hides and yet speaks to save the sinners, said and says. For so much of the subsequent history of the Lord's dealing with his people, generation after generation in the Old Testament, they, they proved they loved the other gods around. Since they couldn't see the Lord, since all they had was his afterglow, his hinder parts, his promises, it seems they cared more about the gods they could see and sense, and perceive, and perform for, or manipulate down to size. As the Lord worked out his salvation story that was to culminate on Calvary's cross in the crucified Jesus of Nazareth, God, always without interruption, absolutely keeps himself hidden in Isaiah's day. So Moses, let's just put him on a really rough chronological timeline, 1500 before, before Jesus and now we jump to the mid-century B.C., mid-8th century B.C. to Isaiah 45. In the context of speaking of the Lord's use of Cyrus, the Persian, as an anointed one, and in the context of the God of Israel sounding like the one who dressed down Job, told him to brace himself like a man so that he would listen, 
Isaiah writes, truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel and Savior. August Pieper, who served in our seminary a century ago, writes in his classic commentary on Isaiah about verse 15. The predicate of the sentence lies in mistater. You are a God who keeps himself hidden. The translation should always express the characteristic of the Hithpael participle, the uninterrupted continuation of the action. Not only now and then does God hide himself, but always, without interruption, absolutely does he keep himself hidden from the reason and senses of natural man, both as to his being and as to his sovereignty. Though not even we preachers are always fully aware of this characteristic of God's being, yet it is clearly set forth in Scripture, and there Professor Pieper has a number of passages. No perception by the senses or the intellect, no conclusions based on axioms of human reasoning, no scientific experiment and discovery, no natural philosophy or metaphysical reasoning will ever discover God. He has hidden himself absolutely from the wise men of the world. God always, without interruption, absolutely hides himself. Even when he reveals himself, this is the point of the incarnation in Jesus Christ, seven and a half centuries later in history, he hides himself. This is oh so important to remember as men under God and especially as preachers, according to Professor Pieper, under God and in Christ. But we get ahead of ourselves. As the Lord worked out his salvation story that was to culminate on Calvary's cross and the crucified Jesus of Nazareth, we hear that the children of Israel wouldn't speak the Tetragrammaton in Jesus' day. So hidden was God and so holy was the use of that name. One more important point to highlight before we get to the incarnation, the enfleshness of the word of God. All the commentators note that so high and so holy is not only the Lord but also his name, that the Tetragrammaton wasn't spoken for centuries, perhaps beginning with the destruction of the temple in 586 by the Babylonians. The special name of the Lord, that mysterious and majestic name that reveals the mysterious and majestic and merciful God, was spoken only once a year by the high priest on the great day of atonement. The God who hides himself, the God of majesty and mystery and mercy, seems to have become even more hidden for years. As the Lord worked out his salvation story that was to culminate on Calvary's cross in the crucified Jesus of Nazareth, God's people experience another twist in the hiddenness of God. The God who speaks to his people does so in another language that will be used in New Testament texts. Let's jump ahead another seven centuries after Isaiah to the first century Greco-Roman Mediterranean world. Please think about your life as a son of Abraham, a Hebrew, a Jew, in that first century. You are literate. Many aren't. You are literate because your people think very highly of words. For the Hebrew words of God read aloud in both temple and now synagogue are recognized as holy. You are also seen as strange because nowhere is there an image of your God, the God of the Hebrews. Your God hides. 
But now there are more of your people, more Jews, living in Alexandria, northern Egypt, than in Jerusalem, which means that there are many Jews who speak and write Greek. Enough that a translation into the Greek language of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures needed to be made for God's covenant people. You had heard the story of the Exodus year after year at the Passover festival. And if you heard the story in Greek-speaking Alexandria, you heard, and there's the Greek for you, but I'll read it in English at the top of the next page, page 10. Moses said to God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What should I say to them? This is verse 14. So God replied to Moses, I am who I am. He also said, you will say this to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. Let's skip that next paragraph. Let's note a couple things. Number one, how the Septuagint, that's that Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew Old Testament, attempted to translate 3 verse 14. I am who I am. And number two, let's notice how the four-letter name, the Tetragrammaton, was translated into Greek. Curious. Lord. Compared to most humans on the planet, you 21st century Christians and your pastors care a lot about words. Your pastors and you are aware of some of the difficult issues in translating text to another language. Please think for a while about the massive issues involved in translating a name, the name that shall not be named, the Tetragrammaton. How would it feel for your Hebrew-speaking grandpa who'd been raised with not saying the name, and now you, a Greek-speaking, or at least a Greek-reading son of Abraham, come to the story, the great salvation story of the Exodus, and there actually a name, the name, is used, kind of. It was hard enough to be a son of Abraham, a Jew, without having to come to grips with such a thorny issue. You were raised to memorize and say the great Shema, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Hear, O Israel, the Lord's our God, the Lord's one and the only one. You were marked as different because you were not only monotheistic, but there were no statues, no images of your deity be seen anywhere. All you had was a word, words from your deity, who hid himself. All you had were the temple practices in far off Jerusalem, if you were able to get there, to see no image, but to see and hear and smell and taste foretastes of the promise of God who hides himself. As the Lord worked out his salvation story that was to culminate on Calvary's cross in the crucified Jesus of Nazareth, the word was made flesh and tented or tabernacled among us. Along comes an image of flesh and blood, just like we are, except there was something different. And now we quote St. John. The real light that shines on everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not recognize him. He came to what was his own, yet his own people did not accept him. But to all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. They were born not of blood or of the desire of the flesh or of a husband's will, but born of God 
the word became flesh and dwelled among us. We have seen his glory, the glory he has as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him. He cried out, this was the one I spoke about when I said, the one coming after me outranks me because he existed before me. For out of his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only begotten son, who is close to the Father's side, has made him known. You, dear son of Abraham, Jew, living in the Mediterranean basin in the first century, would have had to think long and hard about the assertions that are being cast about regarding this Jesus. Plenty of your running mates would have rejected him. Your natural inclination would be to fight against him at the core of his claims. The world was made through him, John said, but the cosmos did not know him, hidden as he was. But to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be the children of God no less. And that birthright was a matter of new birth, not of anything else, certainly not the will, free or otherwise, of man. This Jesus tented among us, just like the Lord had tented among his people before there was a temple building. No one had ever seen God or has seen God who hides himself always without interruption, absolutely. But something has happened, John wrote. Someone who always without interruption and absolutely hides came out of hiding to be seen and heard, kind of, and for a purpose that by believing you may have life in his name. Eight chapters later on in John's gospel, we just looked at John chapter 1, now we're in, at the end of John chapter 8. Professor Gerlach comments, When Jesus declared before Abraham was, I am, he intended to identify himself with the God who had revealed himself with a special unique name, Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton, to Moses at the burning bush. The people reacted to Jesus' claim by picking up stones to stone him for blasphemy. But Jesus was then and is now the eternal I am. He is God. He is personal, personal, not just a vague, impersonal force in the universe. He is real. At the end of his gospel, John told us the purpose for that gospel, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And John wrote that immediately after he had just written the story of Thomas, rejecting the news from the others about Jesus. We've seen the Lord, they said to Thomas. A week later, Jesus again appears behind locked doors, speaks peace that the world cannot understand into the room, and into the hearts and lives of those there, and then addressed the skeptic, Thomas, put your finger here. Look at my hands. Take your hand. Put it into my side. Do not continue to doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. John records that Thomas used the Greek word that was used to translate the Tetragrammaton, 
dear first century son of Abraham, dear first century Jew, living in the Mediterranean basin, you have just had God come out of hiding in your presence. Jesus was just declared to be Kyrios, Yahweh, Lord. The God who damns both soul and body in hell had just been revealed, has just been revealed to you as the one, the one who saves. Where is that revelation? In the person of Jesus, the crucified and now risen one, the only name under heaven given among mankind, whereby we must be saved. So, it's one thing to point out the uniqueness of the name in world history and remark about its mystery and majesty. It's another to make the central claim of Christianity that Jesus is the culmination of Judaism and, in fact, to claim that Jesus actually equates himself to the Lord God, whose name was not even to be named, much less was it heard, except for once a year in his day. And going far past even simply vocalizing the name, Jesus claimed to be that one and accepted worship, God hidden and revealed in Jesus Christ. We'd say Jesus Christ crucified. Do we think that most of our people are actually meditating on this every time they hear Lord, the translation of Kyrios in the New Testament? Does the God who is too awesome to allow Moses to see him come to mind? To make the claim that Jesus is Kyrios, Lord, meant that you needed to be excluded from the Jewish synagogue and the Roman imperial cults for both the God of the Hebrews and the Roman emperor before Jesus claimed to be Lord. It was no small thing for Jesus to be called Lord. It was much more than calling him the equivalent of what a Mexican means when he says Senor, or when a German says Herr, or when an American says Sir. Do the Bible hearers in the worship context and the Bible readers in our congregations and that we seek to serve in outreach evangelism have a clue regarding what's underneath Lord in the New Testament? Does it matter if they don't have a clue? I think it does matter. Mr. Chairman, um, maybe this is a spot to break for a couple moments and see if anybody wants to throw a thought or a question or a comment out there. Microphone number three. My question, my question is regarding um, the use of the name. Um, the commandment says you shall not misuse the name. Is it a misuse of his name? Was it a superstitious matter when the Old Testament people said, we've got a way we will not misuse his name? We just won't say it. Um, what about refusing to say the name? Is that a... Did that develop out of superstition and ungodliness rather than true reverence? Yeah, great question. Um, thanks for taking it seriously. I, you know, I don't know, honestly. I, um, I, I didn't read enough about it to say what's the genesis of the non-use. 
what was pretty striking, though, is that, you know, Jewish commentators on the text and Christians of all stripes said universally that the, that the Tetragrammaton just wasn't vocalized. And that's just remarkable, if you ask me. Um, why? I'll bet you're, I bet you're probably right. In some ways, it was a superstitious and bad thing. Oh, no, he's so holy, we won't even use that name. Like, um, yeah, I mean, so we got to stay afraid of him. Whereas he gives us his name so that we call on our father. You know, that's the jarring thing. Um, I mean, it's, whether wrong-headed or right-headed, it was, it's a remarkable thing to me that uh, everybody that I read was saying it, it's universal, it wasn't vocalized, but once a year by the high priest on the great day of atonement. And then along, I mean, the crazy thing is then Jesus takes on that name. That's huge. Microphone number two. Uh, the mic is not working. That's all right. I'll just talk a little louder. Nobody's ever accused me of beating a mic. Uh, seriously, though. Uh, Pastor Hirsch, you and I go back to high school days. This is by no means intended to be a criticism at all. And here it comes. Uh, is the title? No, it's not. This is falls under the same genre of uh, Ralph Vaughan Williams' uh, Sine Nomine. What's the title of your essay? We embrace the cross. We anticipate the crown. That's the title of this, this convention. So that serves as the title for the essay. Correct. Good. So when I quote this in the future, that's what I'll do in the past. Yes. Yes. Thank you, my friend. Now that we're all clear on that. Thank you. No, thank you. Thanks for, thanks for making sure the correct title is there. Microphone number four. <laughs> Why don't you go up to number two? <laughs> So did we hear the question? Where, what, 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 um, Pastor Patterson, is it on? Yeah. Now right. it's on. Why don't you go ahead and say it again? 
because some did not hear the question. So in our call speak, when we uh, people will uh, make a decision on a call, they'll write sometimes, the Lord led me to decline it, or the Lord led me to accept this call. And, uh, and, and, and all of us will hear around our church, uh, I, what is God trying to tell me, or what is he trying to show me? Or someone will say, God made it very clear to me. He was showing me. And my question is, what is... You got me to thinking this, that the theology of glory and the hidden God, there's got to be some rich insights that are probably swirling around in your head about those scenarios not being really what we want to say or think. Well, God bless you for saying it. Um, there is a section later in the, the essay where I, I do say, let the theologian, um, let those of us who are claiming to speak in the Lord's name, let's speak with certainty from what he really does say. And let's say, let's don't label as divine speech such things that aren't irrefutably divine. Um, I'm not automatically going to say thou shalt not use the Lord led me speech when, you know, I moved from Iowa to California or whatever. But, you know, you asked what I think, and I'm going to say it. I, you know, it's let's say I don't know when we don't know if the Lord hasn't spoken. That's what makes it so remarkable when the Lord attaches a promise to what Pastor Schrader said to us, to us last night. I forgive you in the name of the Father and of the Son. And you know with certainty your sin is forgiven. And that you baptize a child in the name of the Father. And, and it's crazy the promises of God in holy baptism. And in the supper where God hides under bread and wine. Hidden talk is right there in the small catechism. What is, this, what is the um, sacrament of the altar? It's the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ under the bread and wine. And that's remarkable. And that certainty speech, I think... You're asking me what I think. I think we're wise to be a little more circumspect about some other things that we aren't so sure is really the one right way. You know, was it, are you implying that it would have been wrong to, to stay in Iowa? Instead, you moved. So at worst, that kind of speech is enthusiasm, right? That's, that's God putting God talk on the God within us, which is an invention so often, uh, to, to, the, to the word and promise of God, and especially as he comes to us in word and in sacrament, and that certainty there blows us away. Did I not answer the question, or did I do okay? Th thank you for asking the question. See no other hands. All right, so let's, let's continue. Let's start at the top of page 12. As we embrace the cross of Christ crucified, we assert that proclamation, not mood management or closing the deal, you know, like Jesus did his part, you should do yours, uh, is the thing, or how this could affect preaching how it certainly affects proclamation that is willing to be labeled Lutheran, that is authentically Catholic, authentically evangelical. 
Richard Muller and his book, Dictionary of Terms down there, The Hidden God, The Revealed God, the paradox, this is his definition, the paradox of God's unknowability and self-manifestation as stated by Luther. The issue is not that Luther, that God has been hidden and has now revealed himself, but rather that the revelation that has been given to man defies the wisdom of the world because it is the revelation of the hidden God. God is revealed in hiddenness and hidden in his revelation. He reveals himself paradoxically to thwart the proud, sub contrario, under the opposite. Omnipotence manifest on the cross. I'm not convinced that Muller understands Luther. But the point here is that Muller says it is, notably, a faithful Luther and Lutheran thing to think about God hidden, God revealed. Remember that Luther at Augsburg, along with his colleagues there, said it's sinful to go inventing churches like we Americans are so prone to do. The Augsburg Confession goes out of its way to prove its Catholicity. Its teaching was and is in continuity with that of the one holy Catholic, we say Christian a lot of times, and apostolic church. And Luther never gave up on that. His Reformation was about teaching that the authentic Catholic and the authentic evangelical voice of the church actually be heard. But Muller's point is helpful. It's that the Lutherans uniquely end up thinking about this and talking about it as they seek to be faithfully Catholic and evangelical. If this hidden revealed God at the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth thing is so faithfully Catholic and evangelical, one would think Lutheran preaching therefore would be distinct and cross and crown talk out of Lutheran mouths would also be distinct. And I'm just grateful um, Pastor Horn, Pastor Bame, and Pastor Hebner um, did this, right? Proclaim the Christ. It's all about Christ. It's not all about you. Here's the section Muller was thinking of when he mentions under the opposite Above, Luther's responding in his, in his bondage of the will to, the, uh, to Erasmus' statement in his statement, freedom of the will, that some difficult things shouldn't be spoken out loud for the lay people to hear. Okay, catch that? Erasmus is saying, this is too hard, Luther. This is just for us professionals. Don't let the regular guys hear this. Luther completely disagrees. Still, out of our abundance, we will do a work of supererogation and mention two considerations which demand that such things should be preached. The first is the humbling of our pride and the knowledge of the grace of God, and the second is the nature of Christian faith itself. First, God has assuredly promised his grace to the humble, that is, to those who lament and despair of themselves, but no man can be thoroughly humbled until he knows that his salvation is utterly beyond his own powers, devices, endeavors, will, and works, and depends entirely on the choice, will, and work of another, namely of God alone. For as long as he's persuaded that he himself can do even the least thing toward his salvation, he retains some self-confidence and does not altogether despair of himself, 
and therefore he is not humbled before God, but presumes that there is, or at least hopes or desires that there may be, some place, time, and work for him by which he may at length attain to salvation. But when a man has no doubt that everything depends on the will of God, then he completely despairs of himself and chooses nothing for himself, but waits for God to work. Then he has come close to grace and can be saved. It is thus for the sake of the elect that these things are published in order that being humbled and brought back to nothingness by this means they may be saved. The rest resist this humiliation. Indeed, they condemn this teaching of self-despair, wishing for something, however little, to be left for them to do themselves. So they remain secretly proud and enemies of the grace of God. This, I say, is one reason, namely, that the godly being humbled may recognize, call upon, and receive the grace of God. The second reason is that faith has to do with things not seen. Hence, in order that there may be room for faith, what a fun phrase, that there may be room for faith, it is necessary that everything which is believed should be hidden. It cannot, there, however, be more deeply hidden than under an object, perception, or experience which is contrary to it. Thus, when God makes alive, he does it by killing. When he justifies, he does it by making men guilty. When he exalts to heaven, he does it by bringing down to hell. As scripture says, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. This is not the place to speak at length on this subject, but those who've read my books have had it quite plainly set forth for them, Luther says. Thus God hides his eternal goodness and mercy under eternal wrath, his righteousness under iniquity. This is the highest degree of faith, to believe him merciful when he saves so few and damns so many, and to believe him righteous when by his own will he makes us necessarily damnable, so that he seems according to Erasmus, to delight in the torments of the wretched and to be worthy of hatred rather than of love. If then I could by any means comprehend how this God can be merciful and just, who displays so much wrath and iniquity, there would be no need of faith as it is, since that cannot be comprehended. There is room for the exercise of faith when such things are preached and published, just as when God kills, the faith of life is exercised in death. That's now enough by way of preference. Utterly beyond his own powers, completely despairs of himself, they remain secretly proud and enemies of the grace of God, that there be room for faith. If I could by any means comprehend how this God can be merciful and just, who displays so much wrath and iniquity, there'd be no need of faith. Erasmus, the darling scholar of his day, thought that the matter of humans' ability to choose God, or not, as Luther wrote, was too hard for human ears to hear. Luther faithfully has to disagree. If the human can choose his God, then the God that's getting chosen is small and has been made in the image of the man who chose him. Man, Luther points out, does not have the capacity to approach the holy God, not at all. These truths need to be proclaimed, Luther's saying. Since God hides and yet is revealed at the cross of the crucified Jesus of Nazareth, and since humans have a will bound to invent its own gods, 
Humans only find the devil in their search for deity. It's just so striking. To think about faithful proclamation of the God who hides himself always, without interruption and absolutely, means it's helpful to recognize that those who are fallen creatures of God will, with darkened reason and sight, try to and eventually find a God somewhere. Luther's commenting on the sailors who called on their gods while Jonah slept below, right? He was, instead of going this way, he went that way, and then he's sleeping, and a big old storm comes up. Here you find St. Paul's statement in Romans 1 concerning the universal knowledge of God among all the heathen. That is, that the whole world talks about the Godhead and natural reason is aware that this Godhead is something superior to all other things. This is here shown by the fact that the people in our text called upon a God, heathen though they were. For if they had been ignorant of the existence of God or of a Godhead, how could they have called upon him and cried to him? Although they do not have true faith in God, they at least hold that God is a being able to help on the sea and in every need. Such a light, such a perception is innate in the hearts of all men. And this light cannot be subdued or extinguished. There are, to be sure, some people, for instance, the Epicureans, Pliny and the like, who deny this with their lips, but they do it by force and want to quench this light in their hearts. They're like people who purposely stop their ears or pinch their eyes shut to close out sound and sight. However, they do not succeed in this. Their conscience tells them otherwise. For Paul's not lying when he asserts that they know something about God because God has shown it to them. Let us here also learn from nature and from reason what can be known of God. These people regard God as a being who is able to deliver from every evil. It follows from this that natural reason must concede that all that is good comes from God. For he who can save from every need and misfortune is also able to grant all that is good and that makes for happiness. This is far as That is as far as the natural light of reason sheds its rays. It regards God as kind, gracious, merciful, benevolent, and that is indeed a bright light. However, it manifests two big defects. First, reason does admittedly believe that God is able and competent to help and to bestow, but reason does not know whether he's able, whether he's willing to do this also For us, for us, for us. That renders the position of reason unstable. Reason believes in God's might and is aware of it, but it is uncertain whether God is willing to employ this on our behalf because in adversity it so often experiences the opposite to be true. That's very obvious here. These people indeed call upon God, thereby acknowledge that he can help if he's he's thus inclined, They even believe that he may help others, but that's as far as they can go. They cannot transcend that. They exhaust every means at their command. They try their utmost. Free will cannot go beyond that. Huff and puff and do your best. But they do not believe that God is disposed to help them. For if they did, they would not throw the wares that were in the ship into the sea, nor would they turn to Jonah and urge him to call upon his God. No, they would calmly await the help of God. Moreover, the sea would also have become tranquil as a result of their faith. 
But this situation calls for a faith that does not doubt, but is convinced that God wants to be gracious, and not only to others, but also to me. That is a genuine and alive faith. It is a great and rich and rare gift of the Holy Spirit, and so we shall see it in Jonah. The second defect is this. Reason is unable to identify God properly. It cannot ascribe the Godhead to the one who is entitled to it exclusively. It knows that there is a God, but it does not know who or which is the true God. It shares the experience of the Jews during Christ's sojourn on earth. When John the Baptist bore witness of his presence in their midst, they were aware that Christ was among them, that he was moving about among them, but they did not know which person it was. It was incredible, literally unbelievable to them, that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ. Thus, reason also plays blind man's bluff with God. It consistently gropes in the dark and misses the mark. It calls that God which is not God and fails to call him God who really is God. Reason would do neither the one nor the other if it were not conscious of the existence of God or if it really knew who or what God is. Therefore, it rushes in clumsily, assigns the name God, and ascribes divine honor to its own idea of God. Thus, reason never finds the true God, but it finds the devil or its own concept of God ruled by the devil. So there's a vast difference between knowing that there is a God and knowing who or what God is. Nature knows the former. It's inscribed in everybody's heart. The latter is taught only by the Holy Spirit. We shall illustrate this with a few examples. Let's first consider the papists and the religious. These are laboring under the delusion that God is a being who's moved and satisfied by good works. That explains their many vocations, sects, and modes of life, in all of which they presume to serve and please God. Now tell me, what are these people worshiping as God if there is no God whose mind and will conforms to theirs? Is it not true that they are honoring their own delusion and their own fancy as God? For in truth there is no God who is of one mind with them. Therefore they go awry with their illusion. They miss the true God and nothing remains but their own false notion. That is their God. To him they assign the name and honor of God. Of course, no one but the devil can be behind this delusion. For he inspires and governs these thoughts. Thus their delusion is their idol. It is the image of the devil they hold in their hearts. For the real and true God is he who is properly served, not with works, but with the true faith and with sincerity of heart, who gives and bestows mercy and benefactions entirely gratis, without our works and merits. That they do not believe, and therefore they do not know God, but are bound to blunder and to miss the mark. Here you see where all idolatry idolatry comes from and why it's rightly called idol and superstition and idolatry, undoubtedly because such delusion draws us away from God and alienates us from the true worship of God. Indeed, this is an idol and a superstition that directs us away from God and directs us to the devil in hell. 
For since everybody proposes to do something which he regards and believes to be pleasing to God and imagines that God is minded as he supposes he is, but in reality God is not pleased by this. And in reality God is not minded as each one supposes. It follows that as many idolatries must arise as there are illusions of that kind. Every idea of pleasing God comes into, that, into being except that of faith. This the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, must inspire. Thus the idol Baal came to the mind of King Ahab. Since he knew that there was a God, he imagined that it was God who was pleased with his type of worship. Thus he called God Baal, and Baal God, as is evident from Hosea. Furthermore, King Jeroboam supposed that it was God who was pleased with the worship of the golden calves, and therefore calves had to be called the God of Israel. And again, God to be called a calf. That's like calling Christ our Lord a lover of cows or of tonsures today because people assume that he is a God who is in love with cows and tonsures and is well pleased with such service, all that stuff of monkery. I'm sure that monks and priests have, had, have that conception of him in their hearts and also call him but that. But this is an idol and superstition and a delusion which falls wide of the mark. It's genuine arch idolatry. There are innumerable types of idolatry. In fact, there are as many varieties as, uh, as there are illusions and self-chosen concepts of pleasing God. All striking, all but faith in Christ come into this category. And since there is nowhere a God who is pleased with this service, it follows that they're all serving the devil and not God. Let's jump to the next paragraph. Where do we find God at the bottom paragraph is the question. And the humans who seek God or God or themselves as God are only finding the devil, Luther says. Of course he's right, because God hides. He will only be found where he wills to be found, where he promises to be found. And of course the humans will only find the devil, because that's what the humans are bound to do. They can do no other since the fall and before Christ comes again. That means in the real world, not the next one, there is no one who does good, no one who seeks God, none. All will always, without interruption, um, all will find always, without interruption, absolutely the devil. But there are so many who are huffing and puffing and faithing and hoping and striving and bearing their crosses without knowing the cross of Christ. All for God, they think. That has to be the case if people understand themselves to be those who have the power of free choice. They've made, they have to make the right choice. They have to do, they have to perform. It's tiring. God who hides and is ultimately revealed only in the cross of the crucified Jesus of Nazareth is seen in God preached, Christ crucified for us in word and sacrament. The illusion of human so-called free choice regarding the God who hides himself is only frustrating and ultimately damning. A freely choosing human goes together with a God who's small and who can be chosen or invented, but a God who hides himself in order to reveal himself in the way that an omnipotent, creating, redeeming, predestinating God does at the torture device of the Romans with a Jew hanging on it goes together with a human who only has needs before the face of God. It pleases me, Luther says, to take from this passage the opportunity to discuss doubt, God, and the will of God. For I hear that here and there, among the nobles and persons of importance, vicious statements are being spread abroad concerning predestination 
or God's foreknowledge. For this is what they say, if I'm predestined, I shall be saved, whether I do good or evil. If I'm not predestined, I shall be condemned regardless of my works. I'd be glad to debate in detail against these wicked statements if the uncertain state of my health made it possible for me to do so. For if the statements are true, as they of course think, then the, incar- then the incarnation of the Son of God, his suffering and resurrection, and all that he did for the salvation of the world are done away with completely. What will the prophets and all Holy Scripture help? What will the sacraments help? Therefore, let us reject all this and tread it underfoot. So he's going to this big God picture again. Predestination. Man, it's a big God. Um, these are devilish and poisoned darts and original sin itself with, with which the devil led our first parents astray when he said, you will be like God. They were not satisfied with the divinity that had been revealed and in the knowledge of which they were blessed, but they wanted to penetrate to the depth of the divinity. For they inferred that there was some secret reason why God had forbidden them to eat of the tree, fruit of the tree, which was in the middle of paradise. They wanted to know what this reason was, just as these people of our time say, what God has determined beforehand must happen. Consequently, every concern about religion and about the salvation of souls is uncertain and useless. Yet it has not been given to you to render a verdict that is inscrutable. Why do you doubt Or thrust aside the faith that God has enjoined on you. For what end did it serve to send his son to suffer and to be crucified for us? Of what use was it to institute the sacraments if they are uncertain or completely useless for our salvation? For otherwise, if someone had been predestined, he would have been saved without the son, without the sacraments or Holy Scripture, Consequently, God, according to the blasphemy of of these people, was horribly foolish when he sent his son, promulgated the law and the gospel, sent the apostles if the only thing he wanted was that we should be uncertain and in doubt whether we are to be saved or really to be damned. But these are delusions of the devil with which he tries to cause us to doubt and disbelieve, although Christ came into this world to make us completely certain. For eventually either despair must follow or contempt for God, for the Holy Bible, for baptism, for all the blessings of God through which he wanted us to be strengthened over against uncertainty and doubt. For they will say with the Epicureans, let's live, eat, drink, tomorrow we shall die. After the manner of the Turks, they will rush rashly into the sword and fire since the hour in which you either die or escape has been predetermined. But to these thoughts, one must oppose the true and firm knowledge of Christ, just as I often remind you that it's profitable and necessary above all that the knowledge of God be completely certain in us and that we cling to it with firm assent of the heart. Otherwise, our faith is useless. For if God does not stand by his promises, then our salvation is lost. While on the other hand, this is our comfort, that although we change, we nevertheless flee for refuge to him who's unchangeable. For in Malachi, he makes this assertion about himself, I, the Lord, don't change. In Romans, the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. Accordingly, this is how I've taught in my book on the bondage of the will and elsewhere. Namely, 
that a distinction must be made when one deals with the knowledge, or rather with the subject, of the divinity. For one must debate either about the hidden God or about the revealed God. With regard to God, insofar as he has not been revealed, there is no faith, no knowledge, no understanding. And here one must hold to the statement that what is above us is none of our concern. For thoughts of this kind, which investigate something more sublime above or outside the revelation of God, are altogether devilish. With them, nothing more is achieved than that we plunge ourselves into destruction, for they present an object that is inscrutable, namely the unrevealed God. Why not rather let God keep his decisions and mysteries in secret? We have no reason to exert ourselves so much that these decisions and mysteries be revealed to us. Let's skip that next paragraph. We've seen that one already. Moses wanted to see it, and God said no. Next paragraph. Furthermore, God has most sternly forbidden this investigation of the divinity. Thus, when the apostles ask in Acts 1, has it not been predestined that at this time the kingdom should be restored? Christ says to them, it's not for you to know the times. Let me be hidden where I have not revealed myself to you, says God, or you will be the cause of your own destruction, just as Adam fell in a horrible manner, for he who investigates my majesty will be overwhelmed by my glory. And it is true that God wanted to counteract this curiosity at the very beginning, for this is how he set forth his will and counsel. I will reveal my foreknowledge and predestination to you in an extraordinary manner, but not by this way of reason and carnal wisdom as you imagine. This is how I will do so. From an unrevealed God, I will become a revealed God. Nevertheless, I will remain the same God. I will be made flesh or send my son. He shall die for your sins and shall rise again from the dead. And in this way, I will fulfill your desire in order that you may be able to know whether you are predestined or not. Behold, this is my son. Listen to him. Look at him as he lies in the manger, the mystery of the incarnation, and on the lap of his mother as he hangs on the cross, the height of humiliation. Observe what he does and, when he, and what he says. There you will surely take hold of me. For he who sees me, says Christ, also sees the Father himself. If you listen to him, are baptized in his name, love his word, then you are surely predestined and are certain of your salvation. But if you revile or despise the word, then you're damned. For he who does not believe is condemned. You must kill the other thoughts and ways of reason or of the flesh, for God detests them. The only thing you have to do is receive the Son so that Christ is welcome in your heart in his birth, miracles, and cross. For here is the book of life in which you have been written. This is the only and the most efficacious remedy for that horrible disease because of which human beings in their investigation of God want to proceed in a speculative manner and eventually rush into despair or contempt. If you want to escape despair, hatred, or blasphemy of God, give up your speculation about the hidden God and cease to strive in vain to see the face of God. Otherwise, you'll have to remain perpetually in unbelief and damnation, and you'll perish, for he who doubts does not, uh, does not believe, and he who believes does not believe is condemned.
Let's jump ahead. Um, let's jump ahead to the next page, 19. There's a lot of good stuff to read here, but we'll jump ahead. Uh, it's the second full par- no, first full paragraph, the top of 19. Staupitz, Luther says, used to comfort me with these words. Why do you torture yourself with speculations? Look at the wounds of Christ and at the blood that was shed for you. From these, predestination will shine. Consequently, one must listen to the Son of God who was sent into the flesh and appeared to destroy the work of the devil and to make you sure about predestination. And for this reason, he says to you, you are my sheep, because you hear my voice, no one shall snatch, snatch you out of my hands. Let's jump to page 20. Again, there's some fun stuff to read there on that, you know, the big scary thing, supposedly, predestination. Page 20, it's the last paragraph of Luther there. I have wanted to teach. Last uh, Page 20. I've wanted to teach and transmit this in such a painstaking and accurate way, because after my death, many will publish my books, and will prove from them, from them errors of every kind and of their own delusions. Among other things, however, I have written that everything is absolute and unavoidable. But at the same time, I've added that one must look at the revealed God as we sing in the hymn, Jesus Christ is the Lord of hosts and there is no other God, and also in very many other places. But they will pass over all these places and take only those that deal with the hidden God. Accordingly, you who are listening to me now should remember that I have taught that one should not inquire into the predestination of the hidden God, but should be satisfied with what is revealed through the calling and through the ministry of the word. For then you can be sure about your faith and salvation and say, I believe in the Son of God who said, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. Hence, no condemnation or wrath rests on him, but he enjoys the good pleasure of God the Father. But I have publicly stated these things elsewhere in my books, and now I'm also teaching them by word of mouth. Therefore, I'm excused. Let's keep going there at the bottom of 20. Where do I find the omnipotent I am God who always without interruption and absolutely hides himself in the face of the crucified Jesus of Nazareth? But where do I find this Christ? In the scriptures or even more precisely, in the crucified Christ proclaimed on the basis of Scripture. Now we talk about the means of grace. So that our readers may the better perceive our teaching, I shall clearly and broadly describe it. We treat of the forgiveness of sins in two ways. First, how it's achieved and won. Second, how it's distributed and given to us. Christ has achieved it on the cross, it's true, but he has not distributed or given it on the cross. He has not won it in the supper or sacrament. There he has distributed and given it through the word as also in the gospel where it's preached. He has won it once for all on the cross. But the distribution takes place continuously, before and after, from the beginning to the end of the world. For inasmuch as he had determined once to achieve it, it made no difference to him whether he distributed it before or after through his word, as can easily be proved from Scripture. But now there is neither need nor time to do so. If now I seek the forgiveness of sins, I do not run to the cross, for I will not find it given there. Nor must I hold to the suffering of Christ as Karlstadt trifles and knowledge or remembrance, for I will not find it there either. 
but I will find in the sacrament or gospel the word which distributes, presents, offers, and gives to me that forgiveness which was won on the cross. Therefore, Luther has rightly taught that whoever has a bad conscience from his sins should go to the sacrament and obtain comfort, not because of the bread and wine, not because of the body and blood of Christ, or I guess we'd say kind of alone, but because of the word which in the sacrament offers, presents, and gives the body and blood of Christ, given and shed for me. Is that not clear enough? I think it's a fun thing to hear. The cross, of course, is the thing. But how, how, does, how, how does that come to you in a promise? You get to say it. You get to drop it on a baby, on an adult in holy baptism or in the supper. Next section says there is a difference between um, actually proclaiming it, saying it. Um, we'll, we'll start with Ferdy's paragraph. Proclamation. The actual delivery of the goods in the name of God is a far different thing than information. If God promises to arrive and actually deliver the goods in a promise, the faithful church gets the promise in the name of God. To delineate precisely what's meant by proclamation, it's necessary and helpful at the outset to distinguish between two types of discourse. We've already been doing that roughly by articulating the difference between explaining and proclaiming. This difference can be maintained as a difference between primary and secondary discourse. Explaining, talking, and writing about God and things theological is secondary discourse. It's the language of theology in general, the language of teaching, particularly for our purposes here, systematic theology. Secondary discourse is generally third person. He did past tense discourse. Proclamation, on the other hand, belongs to the primary discourse of the church. Proclamation in its paradigmatic or ideal form is first to second person, present tense, unconditional address. We heard it last night, Pastor Schrader said. The most obvious example of such is in the absolution. I declare unto you the gracious forgiveness of all your sins in the name of the triune God. It is first to second person. I declare to you it's present tense. Here and now, I do it. Not tomorrow, not next week, not on Judgment Day, but here and now in the living present. The deed's done. I give it to you. It's unconditional. I don't say God will forgive you if certain conditions are fulfilled, if you properly repent, nor do I say we will pray and hope that God will forgive you. I don't say, may the Lord have mercy on you. No, I say it flat out. I declare unto you, the forgiveness of all your sins, it's proclamation. As such, it belongs to the primary discourse of the church, the chief way the church and the Christian address the world. And the next paragraph, he basically says, you know, it's a remarkable thing. I think about it a lot in worship context. You say it, and then, we, and then uh, you know, what do you say? Okay, I believe this, or do you say, forget it? Um, I don't believe that my sin is forgiven in Jesus Christ alone. What a sad deal. Now we skip over page 22 to the, to the next page, 23. The heading there is solidly on the rock that is the crucified Christ and proclamation of him in word and sacrament. Let's now speak of the Christian life, of trials, suffering, and yes, crosses. Here's where we can and should rightly talk about the Christian life now in faith and living until the then of eternity. 
It's a life of struggle and suffering down here in the sinful world and a life of repentance. For after all, I'm totally sinful, we confess of ourselves. And yet in Christ, we get to hear the other proclaim Christ to me that declares me totally righteous and a saint. We get to daily deny ourselves and die to ourselves as God and thank our Lord God for all of the daily bread life as he chooses to give it to us, crosses and trials included. For where God's word is preached in the Lord's Prayer and large catechism, accepted or believed and bears fruit, there the holy and precious cross will also not be far behind. Let no one think that we will have peace. Rather, we must sacrifice all we have on earth, possessions, honor, house, farm, spouse, children, body, and life. Now this grieves our flesh and the old creature, for it means that we must ever remain steadfast, suffer patiently whatever befalls us, and let go whatever is taken from us. Let God be God, however he guides us. Job would say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Tetragrammaton. Life for the humans after the fall and until Jesus comes again is all under God. We're no longer in Eden. In the liturgy, we regularly confess what our flesh deserves, punishment, now and forever. Yet for the child of God, troubles and struggles serve God's purpose for us. He guides it all. The Christian life is one that experiences plenty of imperfection and troubles and repentance. We die daily to all that's not God as he has revealed himself in Christ crucified and risen declared to us in word and sacrament. As a rule, these troubles are punishments for sin, the apology says. Nevertheless, in the godly, they serve another purpose, for they are inflicted to put present sin to death, because in the saints, they extinguish and mortify concupiscence. For death remains in the saints in order to abolish this impure nature. Accordingly, Paul says, the body is dead because of sin, that is, is put to death because sin still remains present in the flesh. The cross, therefore, is not a punishment, but an exercise and preparation for renewal. For when present sin is put to death, and when in the midst of temptations we learn to seek the aid of God and experience God's presence, we acknowledge more and more the lack of trust in our own hearts, and we encourage ourselves by faith. Christian life is hard work this side of the River Jordan. Flesh militates against the Spirit of God. With regard to the mortification, the killing of the flesh, and discipline of the flesh, we teach, just as the confession states, that a genuine rather than a counterfeit death takes place through the cross and afflictions by which God exercises us. In these, it's necessary to submit to the will of God, as Paul says. Present your bodies as sacrifice. These are the spiritual exercises of fear and faith. Alongside this true putting to death, which takes place through the cross, a voluntary and necessary kind of exercise also exists about which Christ says, be on your guard so that your hearts are not weighed down with dissipation. And Paul says, but I punish my body and enslave it. We should undertake these exercises not because they are devotional exercises that justify, but as restraints on our flesh lest satiety overcome us and render us complacent and lazy. Grounded firmly in the crucified Christ, God hidden and now revealed, now we understand rightly phrases like no crucianos, no Christianos. Our crosses don't earn a thing for us. Our struggles in the Christian life are not ever to be the locus of our trust. In Christ alone do I know who I am and where my eternal destiny is. 
All else that seeks to be my God must be vigorously rebuffed, even killed, in regard to the reluctant, recalcitrant flesh, Paul says, I punish my body and enslave it. And in Galatians and Romans, those who belong to Christ have crucified, indeed killed their flesh with its passions and desires and activities. Let's go to the paragraph below. God is hidden in Christ crucified. The church is hidden under the cross also. We believe, teach, and confess that we know she exists, the church exists, by faith and not by sight. We must resist the temptations to be the church triumphant before our risen and ascended and exalted Lord Jesus comes again. We know where she exists, where the gospel is purely proclaimed and the sacraments are rightly administered, and you could add, actually, to people. But it's important to say that we know where the church exists and declaring that as an article of faith is a far cry from seeing the church with our eyes and judging her strength ultimately by any metric other than the gospel in word and sacrament. I belabor the obvious. If the church, which is truly the kingdom of Christ, is distinguished from the kingdom of the devil, it necessarily follows that the ungodly, since they are in the kingdom of the devil, are not the church. Although in this life, because the kingdom of Christ has not yet been revealed, they intermingle with the church and hold offices in the church. Just because the revelation has not yet taken place does not make the ungodly the church. For the kingdom of Christ is always that which he makes alive by his spirit, whether it has been revealed or is hidden under the cross, just as Christ is the same. Let's rightly see our eternal crown then in sight. The crown is not the quid pro quo reward for our good works or for our well-intentioned promises or for our extra hard, extra special acts of penance designed to impress both God and man. But his promise of the crown certainly has to do with our eternity in the presence of the living God. Such a promise certainly affects our life in the here and now. As we live the rest of our lives in faith in the promises of God, while we struggle, while we suffer, while we experience the cross, trial, and pain, especially as we cross the river Jordan and death, we are beggars. This is true, we say along with Luther. Beggars, yes. But such a grand and glorious and gracious Lord we have, who has revealed himself in the bloodied, humiliated face of the crucified Jesus of Nazareth. All this he did that I should be his own, live under him in his kingdom, and serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness, just as he has risen from death and lives and rules eternally. This is most certainly true. We will live in his kingdom eternally, then in sight. We trust we will live forever in heaven with him. And we also now live in his kingdom, now by faith. Now when our heavenly father gives his Holy Spirit so that by his grace we believe his holy word and lead a godly life now on earth. For faith alone in the crucified Christ alone theology sets itself up against sight. We live by faith and not by sight, and yet in faith, we cross the eschatological divide. We now experience what God promises. St. Paul repeatedly asserts that the faithful in Christ are now seated in the heavenly realm. So sure and certain are we that his promises are good. We heard that again in the prayer last night. We 
give you thanks for the, this foretaste of the heavenly blank, banquet that we will have. There it was in the promise of God under the bread and wine, um, a foretaste of, of, our, of the, the eternal kingdom. Uh, when we say we embrace the crown, we say by faith in Jesus Christ crucified, the Lamb of God who was slain. All our devotions and, uh, will be pointing us to the risen, crucified, risen, and exalted Savior in the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? The revelation of Jesus Christ. Troubles, yes. Hardships also for the people of faith in Jesus Christ, yes. But please draw out in your mind's eye the pictures the Spirit uses St. John to paint for us. And note how, note how often at the center is our crucified, risen, ascended, and exalted Lord Jesus reigning victoriously. Yes, the theologian of the cross sees things the way they are. The humans captive to their own gods and their own ways to please those gods. And yet, in the Christ, who is really present in proclamation and in sacrament, we win with our Lord, the victorious crucified Jesus. When we say we anticipate the crown, we're speaking eschatologically, last things about the last things. So yes, we will reign in the kingdom of priests forever with our Lord. We say with St. Paul to his younger co-worker, to Second Timothy, there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord will award me on the last day. But trusting in our living Lord Jesus, we're certain of the crown of life. But now we rightly also see our eternal crown now in faith. Luther in Freedom of the Christian. All of us who believe in Christ are priests and kings, right? You have a crown in Christ. You are a chosen race, God's own people, a royal priesthood, a priestly kingdom that you may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The nature of this priesthood and kingship is something like this. First, first, with respect to kingship, every Christian is by faith so exalted above all things that by virtue of a spiritual power, he's Lord of all things without exception so that nothing can do him any harm. This is one of Luther's two big theses in the freedom of the Christian. As a matter of fact, all things are made subject to him and are compelled to serve him in obtaining salvation. Accordingly, Paul says in Romans 8, all things work together for good for the elect. And in 1 Corinthians, all things are yours, whether life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's. This is not to say that every Christian is placed over all things to have and control them by physical power, a madness with which plenty of churchmen are afflicted. afflicted. For such power belongs to kings, princes, and other men on earth according to their God-given stations and vocations. Our ordinary experience in life shows us that we are subjected to all, suffer many things, and even die. As a matter of fact, the more Christian a man is, the more evils, sufferings, and deaths he must endure, as we see in Christ the firstborn prince himself and in all his brethren the saints. The power of which we speak, not physical up above, but it is spiritual. It rules in the midst of enemies and is powerful in the midst of oppression. This means nothing else than that power is made perfect in weakness, and that in all things I can find profit towards salvation, so that the cross and death itself are compelled to serve me and to work together with me for my salvation. 
This is a splendid privilege and hard to attain, a truly omnipotent power, a spiritual dominion in which there's nothing so good and nothing so evil, but that it will work together for good to me if only I'd believe. Yes, since faith alone suffices for salvation, I need nothing but faith, exercising the power and dominion of its own liberty. Lo, this is the inestimable power and liberty of Christians. Let's jump ahead to the last section there. The crown is ours, then eternally, but now in faith against triumphalism that wants the crown now in sight. Mixing up crown and cross talk and not keeping the truths properly distinguished leads quickly to all kinds of silliness. It certainly can lead to the worst kind of confusion regarding the two kingdoms or two realms in which the Lord actually reigns as king. Far, far too many have been tempted to think we know the way things really are by judging which political parties in charge or which legislation's passing in Congress or which laws are seen as, in, as constitutional in our nation state or which football team is winning. Let the faithful church turn from what is natural to our flesh, being theologians of glory, that is, theologians of a law that others should be doing, including even the law of God. If the faithful church isn't taking seriously the glorious task of forgiving the sins of the sinners, gospel ministry, which of course means telling the humans how badly in bondage they are to the wrong gods, then who's actually doing gospel ministry? We're all simply arguing about what or who is right and what or who is legal. Let's point out the sinfulness of the humans proven by their sinful action, but let's not act like the huffers and puffers out there who sing the song of more and harder. Let's proclaim the Christ who's both revealed on the cross and who's hidden on the cross. No human would ever invent such foolishness as Christ crucified as the proclamation that actually gives new life, hope, and salvation. But that's what our God has done, and that's what he continues to do now through the faithful ministry of the church. We preach Christ crucified. We deliver the goods via word and sacrament. Let the gospel be the offensive thing in our assemblies, not somebody watching his favorite cable channel and aping the party line of this side or that. Let's stand on the rock of Theologia Crucis and reject any and all of the other competing stories, all other theologies of glory, some of which are claiming to be scriptural, using all the right words, faith, grace, forgiveness, cross, crown, Jesus, but mushing them together in ways that obscure the clarity and foolishness of the message of Christ crucified for us and not for us alone. Let's live by faith and not by sight, faith in the crucified and living and reigning Christ, who promises that we rule with him even now in faith. All things serve us for our good, and eternally we'll sit on thrones with him. Let's push off the temptation to turn cross terminology into typical curved-in-on-ourselves glory stories. You know, the Christian life's a tough one, so go ahead and make yourself as obnoxious as you can possibly be to others so they dislike you, especially to those in the world who don't yet know the name of Jesus rightly and view them as enemies because you're somehow afraid of them rather than being afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell and who's also the one who gave himself up for us all. Let's live in the certainty of the shocking promises of the God who hides, 
even when he reveals himself. That means we live by faith in the promises of God in Christ, not by sight of any kind, not even ecclesiastical metrics. Our God is hidden, so is the church. Let's live proclaiming that that one who comes out of hiding in our faithful proclamation, who promises life eternal, who promises it's all good, who promises a crown, but not a one of us sees the crown. And plenty of us suffer, yes, even bear crosses while traveling to the River Jordan. Let's resist the temptations to be the church triumphant in anything other than Christ crucified, not even in our great mission programs, our great ministerial ed system, our great Lutheran teachers, our great pastors, our great leadership. And I, I, you know, I thank God all the time for those things. All of it, though, in the final analysis is, is down here and therefore is not Christ crucified proclamation or sacrament this administration. There alone in Christ, as he comes to us in word and sacrament, does our God promise to be our gracious God, not in a mystical meditation up in the hills or in our triumphant stadium-filling events, but in the humble words of your humble preacher, who is definitely a clay pot, so that the all-surpassing power be of God and not of us. Let's die to all of it, to anyone and anything other than Christ crucified. There he saves there he promises to us a crown. This is most certainly true. Mr. Chairman, anybody wants to talk? Um, I'm happy to. Microphone number two. Is this thing on? Uh, on page 25, middle of the page, when we say we embrace the crown, should that be we embrace the cross? Why would we embrace something we don't yet have? Well, we do have the crown also by faith. We do. So we do embrace the crown. This is the crazy thing. We have one foot in heaven. So, you know, this is the promise of our God in eternity. But we also, his word is so good and so sure that we also embrace the crown even now. Not in some weird triumphant way like, you know, um, like, I, like, I always am going to win my basketball games because that's, I'm on Jesus' team and he's on my team. But in a way that says, um, all things do serve me. I, we do embrace the crown even now that's promised. So, so sure is the promise of God to you. Your eternal crown is yours in eternity, but it's also yours now. Appreciate the clarification. Well, thanks for saying it. We live by faith. We do. Microphone number four. Pastor Gene DeVries, serving Zion and Emmanuel in Hutchinson, Minnesota. A couple of questions. First of all, uh, will this paper be available electronically? I enjoyed it so much, I'd like to induce my circuit to study it. Well, as I understand, it'll be on Wells' website. Okay. Lee's, Lee's going like that. Wonderful. Uh, my second question is, uh, in response also to your answer to Don Patterson earlier, you said, that you didn't want to eliminate language about God leading us. And you also mentioned, I think it was on page 21, was an offhand comment about God guiding us. And I wanted to question that a little bit because I wonder if there is a lot of value in that kind of language. Because I asked myself the question, what, in what does the leading of the Holy Spirit of, of God consist? 
And the best answer that I can come up with is it, it consists in God transforming our heart so that we love the things he loves, uh, transforming our mind so that we know his ways and our will so that we want to do his will. But then is there value to say, because people are still asking this in my church, uh, did God tell me to go pray with that person? Did God tell me, or I think God wants me to do X, Y, or Z? But the most that I want to say to them is, is it's in keeping with the will of God, but I think it's dangerous to say to them, well, God led you to do that, rather than to just say, God is transforming your will, God is changing your heart through his word, and that's where the leading of God is to be found, and is there anywhere else to find it except there? Yeah, so, good for you. Um, to the word and to the testimony, where the Lord God has given us specific promises and where he has revealed his will, there we stand on the rock, and of course that's especially Jesus Christ, and that God transforms us and makes us new and that we are to die to the old and be alive to the new, I, I'm all for it. Um, I, I do think this is kind of, I think I'm trying to answer your question. Um, you know, how do we know the will of God for us going forward? And all kinds of ink has been spilled. Well, here's how you figure out the will of God. Luther's pretty helpful, I think. Again, to the word of God, where he speaks clearly, especially in his promises, especially centering in, um, as he comes to us in word and sacrament. But then, you, but then you put yourself in the world of the neighbor and you go look at your neighbor and you see a need. And that's where we know the will of God, where I see my neighbor's need. Right? So we don't have to figure out, do I need to... It's so silly when we try to do that in a future kind of way. Oh, what does God want me to do? And so, and the, so much of the evangelical world goes there, right? Because God has a plan for you. Well, that's true enough. But where's the promise that you're ever going to know that plan? And so it's a, it's a real devilish temptation when they, when they go there. No, here's what I know. The Lord God has, you, has a home for you in eternity, and you are his. Holy baptism says that, and you're dead to the old and alive to the new. Now get living in the world. You've got neighbors who've got all kinds of needs. Open your eyes, and, and there you can say, there's the will of God for me today. My child is sick as a dog, and I've got to stay home because my child is sick as a dog. And I got, you know, I'm, am I answering your question? Yeah, I think so. And you spoke to this earlier. I just wanted to clarify, but you spoke about certainty. And we can know nothing for certain about the will of God apart from the revealed word of God. And I think that's where we need to come back to again and again. Amen. Thank and, you. And, uh, in, and especially... Um, especially in the offense of the crucified Christ. You know, there you are, not old Eugene. You know, there you. you are new. Yeah, thank you. Microphone number one. Billy Carter, I serve St. Paul's Brownsville, Wisconsin, and St. Peter's in Kikoski, Wisconsin. Thank you, Phil, for this emphasis that we've been talking about a little bit now on, on proclamation and the certainty that exists only there and not in anything else. We've all heard so many people say to us, I know what God says, but. but. Now, sometimes they're talking about behavior, and you, you address the times when that happens. But it, it comes to other things, too. I know 
but I feel this or I see this instead. And, and we get so caught up in it. Thank you for the reminder to, to watch out for that too. Appreciate it. Thanks for saying so. Microphone one. My name is Mike Seifert. I serve at Living Hope in Midlothian, Virginia. Uh, first, I just wanted to say I, I told the guy sitting next to me that I wanted to thank Martin Luther for your paper. Luther quote. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you, you included uh, uh, great sections, and, and the way that you read it, we both uh, noted really made his words come to life and, and helped us to notice things that we may not have noticed on our own. Uh, otherwise, I'm not sure I really have a question or a point, but I just wanted to muse a little bit about the, the service last night and, and just how awesome it was at the end when, uh, when we turned around and there, like from my perspective, I had the whole congregation in sight and, and singing, Lo, he comes with clouds descending. And it was just like the church at its best. And then we go home, and for some of us, it'll be to churches that there's not a pastor, and it's just the, the, the elder reading the sermon, and it seems like so much less. And we, we look at the statistics and see dropping in every year, and it, and it kind of seems to some of us like we're losing, uh, but what you pointed us to in the paper reminds us that we're not. We're, we're, we are the, the subjects and the agents of a hidden God who always wins. And whether a, a church is on the verge of closing after 50 years or 10 years or 100 years or is growing by, by leaps and bounds, uh, I don't know, I compare it to Amazon, like Amazon is such a huge company. I heard uh, Jeff Bezos say once though that the day will come when Amazon will be no more. But what, what is being accomplished at our churches through the gospel is God is producing trophies that will last forever. And it is never for naught whether we're singing at St. Paul's, Louis comes with clouds descending, uh, or we see hardly anything for our work. So thank you for pointing that out in your paper, and thank you for including lots of Luther. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for saying it, Pastor Seifert. I, um, I thought that last night, similar kinds of thoughts. It's, uh, you know, a foretaste of the heavenly banquet, and I, in my head I'm thinking music, and I'm thinking beautiful stained glass windows, and all of the, all of the kinds, all of the stuff, which is awesome. But finally, the craziest thing is what the clay pot named Jim Hebner called by God through the church to speak, you know. He, he promised us um, that we win in Jesus. And Pastor Schrader promised us that we are forgiven in the Lord Jesus. And honestly, I don't know if a one of you guys believe in Jesus, right? You don't, you don't, I, you don't know if I do. Right? We can't read each other's hearts, but we sure love to hear the promise of God. That's the thing we know. That's the thing we know. Whether it's 500 people in the assembly or two or three. Thank you for saying it. Thank you. Microphone number four. 
Pastor Lehman from Southwest Missouri. Uh, that's not a contradiction in terms. I am a pastor and a layman at the same time. And being in Missouri, I'm not a part of your district. So This I know. <laughs> Yes, and when you did thought. the Pastor Layman thing, I'm saying, this I'm thankful for this, I'm, so I don't have to explain that. Page 20, or excuse me, page 14. Very bottom. So you're in Luther's writings here, your dear friend. I've got to read a, a couple parts here, and I want your reaction to what I say afterwards, all right? And part of this comes because in my situation, I've attended quite a few Catholic funerals, Baptist funerals, and I really have to say there's no difference between a Catholic funeral and a Baptist funeral in the end. Um, I can explain that later, but, so he starts out by saying, consider the papists here, all right? So we're considering the Catholic Church, Catholic theology. And uh, these are laboring under the delusion that God is, being, is a being who is moved and satisfied by good works. I'll drop a couple lines there. Now tell me, what are these people worshiping as God if there is no God whose mind and will conforms to theirs? Is it not true that they are honoring their own delusions and their own fancy as God? For in truth, there is no God who is of one mind with them. They go awry with their illusions. They miss the true God. Nothing remains but their own false notions that that is their God. No one but the devil can be behind this. Next page. Their delusion is their idol. They hold the devil in their hearts. They do not know, at the end of that paragraph, they do not know God but are bound to blunder and to miss the mark. So if that is true in Catholicism, if anybody remains in Catholicism, can they be saved? Yeah. So, you know, denomination labels are very helpful in, in, in the fact that it, it's what you say you're saying. Um, but of course, there are people who are in, in places where, the, where their public confession is really a mile off the mark. But if the gospel, what saves? If the gospel is proclaimed, purely proclaimed, and the sacraments are rightly administered, there we believe there we trust. It's an article of faith, not of sight. There we believe the church exists. So, so Luther is crazy here because he lumps, he, in not just a place like this, but he lumps all the glory theologians together. The papists, the Turk, right, the Muslim, the, the enthusiasts. He lumps them all together. There's only one place where there is salvation, and that's in the word and promise of God in Christ Jesus. And that's just a remarkable thing. And of course, it's true, uh, because to the extent that, that we're going to depend on anything that the human brings, that puts you in very, un, very uncertain turf on shifting sand. But you didn't, am I speaking to your question? Well, you're speaking to it, yes, but I'm still thinking about this because if they're laboring under a delusion, they cannot know Christ. So if they cannot know Christ because it's really of the devil, how can they be saved? Well, true, to the, extent that, to the extent that a glory theologian actually believes what the glory theologian's public confession says, that's a problem. 
Thanks be to God, there's a happy inconsistency that not everybody actually believes what their public statement about their confession actually is. Thanks be to God, there are people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ even though, even though the public confession of a certain place says it, it's all about them cooperating with Jesus. Yeah, I'm not so concerned about the theologians, I guess. I'm more concerned about the uh, normal congregational member. Well, and it, you know, and there's finally every human's a theologian. Like every every one of us is an athlete. Some of us are bad, or everyone, <laughs> and some of us are. You know, we're all musicians too. Some of us are bad. Everybody's everybody's a theologian by nature. We'll take one more question before our delayed break. Microphone number one. Dick Dorn, layman from St. John's in Lewiston, Minnesota. It talks about Paul not using the the arguments of, of, of wisdom, and, and you talk about all through it, our, our unknowing God is unknowable God. Is there a danger in the apologetics in trying to figure out everything, making sure everything makes sense in the Bible that we go to that instead of just pointing people to the cross? Yeah, I love your question. Um, there, are, there, are, there, there are plenty of folks who do the apologetics thing these days as an attempt to reason folks into heaven, right? You, I think that's what you're saying. It's frankly one of the reasons I really appreciate Dr. Thompson, um, who's serving at MLC these days. He's written on God Hidden. Uh, he did so as a college student already, and he's done did something else. I don't know, was it last year's symposium? But um, faithful Lutheran apologetics are going to be different than than the others because if to the extent that we think we're going to persuade somebody into heaven or reason them into heaven we're just unbelievably on false prophet ground there so i i think i'm tracking with you god hidden is the craziest thing there ever is who reveals himself in jesus christ and let 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 that be the basis of our apologetic is that what you were saying yeah i, I just think we get stuck in that ourselves. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll do an apologetics class and, and all this, and maybe some of that's a waste of time. Well, I, and again, there's, there's a difference between faithful uh, apologetics, let's yep. say, and, and unfaithful silly. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm assuming that's an announcement. President's announcement. Uh, did everybody see this little slip of paper in front of you? It took me two sessions to see it. You can go up there where NPH is and put your name in a hat, and on the last day they're going to draw out three $25, uh, $25 gift cards. Your wife is watching online and she cuts coupons, and she knows you heard that announcement. So do not forget to go put your name in the hat. And if you see the guy that invented the number zero on the street, what would you tell him? Thanks for nothing. We will thank Pastor Hirsch, though, for his essay. Thank you. We will declare a recess, uh, returning here at 4 o'clock.